I feel sick. I feel like I want to vomit my entire internal being over every single person in the auditorium I was just sitting in who applauded, who voiced their approval, who sat open-mouthed in quiet contemplation of the thing I've just seen. I feel utterly repulsed and I can't remember um, responding to a live performance in this fashion ever. I don't know whether I will record this, whether I will release this podcast or not. I'm speaking entirely without notes. I'm speaking just after I've seen the show. I wanted to record this because, because, uh, it goes against everything that I really want to do right now. All I really want to do is not talk about what I've seen, not share my experiences. At the same time, I have this ongoing belief that theatre, that live performance has a capacity to make an audience feel to provide an experience that nothing else can and when faced with proof of this I feel that I have a responsibility to document the way that I'm feeling I don't think I like what I'm doing right now and I'm not sure what I'm going to say I really don't know whether it's a wise idea to say it but I'm going to say anyway so I've just returned from Seeing a performance of Alice Birch's adaptation of Marguerite Duras play La Maradite de la Mort, um, directed by Katie Mitchell, performed at the Lyceum Theatre. I don't know how long it's going on for. I have no idea if anybody listening to this will want to see it after I finish speaking. Um, I should say I don't even know whether I think this was good theatre or not. I maintain my belief that Alice Birch is possibly the finest dramatist working in Britain at the moment. Um, I don't know if that's actually a good thing or not, because what I've essentially just seen is somebody taking uh, some of the worst fears that I have, some of the worst memories and suspicions that I have, and put them on stage mercilessly without pause for an hour. Um, I'm not going to do a welcome to stage by the thing, because that also seems trite. So, I don't even know how to start this conversation. I, I, the... <sighs> Let's start with the face. I, I kind of, as, as I was watching this this show, I was thinking about the face a lot. We just had this this um, scandal or event in the press about Boris Johnson, the former foreign secretary, idiot in chief, who has made a series of comments about burqas and um, niqabs and women who wear veils in Islam, and um, and this has reignited an age-old argument about what the veiling of women in contemporary society means. And there's a variety of perspectives that are often offered in this. The kind of the common one is about freedom of speech and about freedom of expression and about how uh, women are forced into this position because they're forced to cover their faces. I don't want to speak to that, to the idea of freedom of speech. I don't feel qualified. What I, I do, what I am curious about is, is this idea of the face and the covering of the face. If we were talking about a religion that required the covering of the hands or the feet or the belly or the bum or the breasts or whatever, then we wouldn't have this problem. The problem is that it's the covering of the face, and the face is, is the thing that we feel, I think probably that we have some right over, some kind of ownership over, some sort of um, public um, consumption of, I suppose, that uh, if you don't see a person's face that they are not being true to you, because through the face we express the things that make us ourselves. I mean, ultimately what we're talking about here is the fact that if you cover a person's face, they are less able to be uh, identified on CCTV. And that really is what we're worried about. It's the, the idea that a person can then commit a crime without being recognised. My granny, I remember walking through um, the uh, Cleveland Centre in Middlesbrough when I was a kid, and there was a woman walk 
pastor's wearing the veil. And my granny turned to me and giggled and said she thought it was an excellent idea because women who wore the veil could just swap husbands and the husbands would never know. And so the women could have lots of fun without um, ever being accountable for it. And my mother, I remember trying to explain to her that that's not the way it works. You know, they, they take the veils off at home. But I think my granny was doing what she always did and was being mischievous. But there's this this idea of, of the face is something that is apparently paramount in our society. And um, as I was watching the show, and I'll get into why I've been thinking about the face, as I was watching Alice Butcher's piece, I was thinking about Emmanuel Levinas, who wrote a lot about the face. Um, he said that the face was the boundary between the self and other. Now, the, the boundary between the self and other is a thing that we have to overcome as adults. It's not something that exists as a uh, child. There is a lot of studies done about babies and about how they don't recognize the difference between the self and other. And at some point they do. And at some point, at the point at which they do recognize the difference between self and other, this is a, a point of quite extreme trauma for them because they realize that they are separate from the person that has been nurturing them, the people that have been nurturing them from the word go. Um, and Levinas points out that actually when we, we encounter a face, what we're encountering is the the thing that reminds us about the ethical responsibilities that we have because the the first and foremost commandment in the judeo-christian religions is uh the, the responsibility to the other is thou shalt not kill right there's other commandments about um obeying the the, the, um, the sabbath and observing the sabbath and about um worshiping the one god but the the, the, the commandment that re refers most to each other is thou shalt not kill and that reminds us on the one hand, of a responsibility not to kill, but also, on the other hand, it reminds us that there is an impulse in us to commit violence to that which is not ourselves. And so the face becomes this kind of paradoxical barrier that, on the one hand, uh, becomes the kind of uh, the place in which we are most uh, required to prove our ethical responsibility. And the, on the other hand, it becomes the place that reminds us of the need for that commandment to exist, Right. If there was no drive for violence, there would be no need for the commandment, thou shalt not kill. And so this is where the face um, comes into its own. And it should be said that, um, that Levinus actually said that the face was not necessarily a face, but whatever part of the body that we encountered that reminded us of the other. Now, I've been thinking about the face a lot in, in the research that I've been doing, because um, the face of the other is, I think, most often uh, presented to us in the form of an image, because the way in which we engage with the majority of life is through images, whether that be through, you know, walking through town and seeing images of advertisements and people with impossibly beautiful bodies modeling clothes, or whether it's through uh, checking out somebody's Facebook profile and seeing the carefully curated system of images that they've presented in order to um, sculpt this ideal life that we all do, that we, uh, those of us that are on social media, that we all kind of present to each other. We have become acclimatized to confusing the face with the image of the face but the thing is that the image is not the face images are alien to the face because um, what an image does is it reproduces the face in a format that is alien to the face a face is not a series of zeros and ones a face is not a canvas a face is not um, the side of a bus it is a an actual tangible physical boundary and when we encounter the physical boundary we have a very different relationship and response to that than we do to the image and the thing that brought this home most clearly to me in the last couple of years was the um the image of the drowned um syrian boy alan kurdi that was uh photographed by uh, Demir on a beach um and I, I made an episode about this a long time ago where i was completely confounded by the fact that we could see uh an image of the face of the other that uh, for a brief period of time awoke in us uh, a sense of, of of empathy, of pity, of fear, of 
sorrow of, of tragedy. But within a very short space of time, we had moved from that image to the image that was presented to us by the leader of the uh, UK Independence Party at that point, Nigel Farage, who had this poster that was full of brown people who wanted to get into Europe, and it said the EU has failed us all, breaking point. And I couldn't believe that we had managed to move from our empathetic um, response to this um, other, this childhood drowned, to this this kind of image of uh, people want to get into the EU. And of course, the answer was very simple. It's because we'd been responding to images rather than to actual faces. Now, bearing all this in mind, the, the show that I've just seen, um, uh, La Maladie de la Mort, um, the premise is very simple. It's about, it's set in a hotel room and the hotel room is reproduced in kind of, um, microscopically realistic fashion on the stage. It's uh, the kind of hotel room which, um, Sarah Kane's play, uh, blasted opens with this stage direction saying it's so posh that it could be anywhere. That's what we see. It's a, a hotel room that is so posh that it could be anywhere. There is a man and a woman in the hotel room. There are a man and a woman in the hotel room. And the man um, has invited or hired the woman to come into the hotel room and he's going to pay her a large sum of money. And the sum of money increases as the play goes on in order to do things for him and she initially doesn't know what those things are she's aware that she will have to perform something of a sexual nature but she's not certain what that is and so she strips off the first thing that happens is she strips off and it also is important that the apparatuses of um observation are made very clear to us from the word go in as much as there are people on stage wearing black stagehands who have cameras and boom mics and there is a woman sitting in a sound booth that's just off to one side stage right and she's sitting there with a script in front of her and a microphone in front of her and when she speaks you hear it through the tannoy and she kind of serves as a monologue a kind of um she uh when there is no dialogue between the, the man and the woman she acts as the woman's internal monologue and so the first thing that happens is the one strips off and she starts talking and saying, is this what you want? And the man says, no. Um, she's confused by this and he says that he doesn't want her to talk. And then he asks her, well, tells her rather, he doesn't ask her anything, he tells her to get into a series of positions and says that what he wants to do is to experience love. And she kind of accepts this but she says that this is going to be very expensive and as i said her price goes up as she goes along but there's a sort of sense that he has decided that he needs to experience this feeling of love and so he's going to pay a woman to come and stand in his hotel room to assume a variety of poses to allow herself to be penetrated both physically and by his camera which he his mobile phone camera that he, he wields at various points in order so that he can experience this tangible sentiment and at that point for that point, actually, for for the first part of the play, I didn't really feel much at all. And the reason I didn't feel much was because Birch, in her previous work, has explored the notion of a kind of radical passivity in the female form. There's a play that she wrote called uh, Revolt, she said Revolt, Revolt Again, which contains an extraordinary monologue by a woman who is in a supermarket and who gives up. She says that she is... Um, she's incapable of resisting penetration anymore. She's just going to lie down naked on the floor and allow anything that wants her to penetrate her body. And by doing this, by um, ceasing resistance, she will um, overcome the forces that seek to overpower her. She will be victorious. This is 
something that is not uncommon in art. Um, it's also something that is deeply gendered and problematic. I once saw a, a person giving a, a very good paper on sleep in fiction and the way in which men and women fall asleep in fiction and the kind of the idea that men fall asleep in fiction the kind of the model for that is neo in the matrix when he falls asleep he becomes a superhero he has the power of flight he can beat up a hundred um invincible enemies at once when women fall asleep in fiction and the, the example that this person used was an australian film called sleeping beauty which is about uh, a woman who takes drugs and falls asleep in a room and is then her body is then used by um punters and she wakes up and she has no memory of this. And she says that when women fall asleep in fiction, they become passive. Now, Birch seems to be using this convention again. The, we witness the conscious um, submission of the woman on stage to the man. It was a conscious submission in a way that she had decided to take financial remuneration for her body. And so there is a kind of power that is presented there in as much as the man is never going to get the thing that he wants, which is love, which is a genuine response. And this gets to the heart of a lot of um, questions concerning prostitution, which, you know, the, the, the questions are as old as the, as the profession is, which is this idea that the, there is the prostitution is a performance, that it presents in an artificial sense the thing that, that the person who is paying for it wants, and therefore they will never get it. To me, that felt dated because um, because this is 2018, because Me Too has happened this year, because it doesn't feel sufficient at the moment for women to take personal spaces and to be submissive or to submit or to um, to try to gain a kind of power in um, allowing men to do whatever they want to, but not to gain the thing that they actually want. Because, I mean, I, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, I've seen uh, Dressed, the, the, the show where women reclaimed uh, a space in a way that was entirely for themselves and un inarguably was not designed to be able to incorporate the gaze of the spectator. And I thought that was extraordinary and stunning. And to be honest, I was supposed to go and see a show tonight um, called How to Be a Bad Girl, which looked like it was going to do a very similar thing. And I was excited by this, but I couldn't physically stomach the idea of not, doing what I'm doing right now. I, I felt like I had to sit and talk about this. I'm sorry, this is a very self-indulgent um, episode in many ways, and I hope people will forgive me for this, but as I said at the beginning, that this feels like too much of a a validation of all the things that, that I, I think about theatre, and at the same time I'm terrified of not to record it. So, at some point in the show, this sense of disappointment in what Birch was doing vanished and was replaced by something much more terrifying which, and I don't know when it happened, because what happens in the show is that the guy kind of, the woman comes back repeatedly, you see her going through a variety of rituals, putting on a set of high-heeled shoes when she comes into the hotel room, um, when she leaves she puts on a pair of trainers, she gets into the, the elevator and she lights a cigarette and she's occasionally witnessed by a person who is in another hotel room, there is a large screen um, above the stage, which is usually showing images that are being broadcast direct from cameras that are on the stage, and occasionally it shows other footage, footage of um, the hotel room from outside, a very lonely building that seems to be in the, you know, bordering some kind of water, but there are also kind of memory images of a village and of a house and of a girl, a young girl, who has some kind of relationship to the woman on stage, but you're not quite sure what until very late on. But, and and I was kind of, what what I thought was happening was that the argument was being presented was that the image is not enough. That if you go looking for um, response, that if you go looking for 
satisfaction that if you're looking for meaning in the image that you will find nothing because in the interaction between the spectator and the image there is only the spectator an image is a thing Marie-José Monzan, the, the French theorist who I mentioned on previous podcast episodes, who is criminally underknown in um, the anglophonic world because she hasn't, well, I think probably largely because she's a woman, but also because um, she hasn't been kind of spread around, her, her, her books haven't been spread around enough. She talks about images and says that when we talk about um, the image, we must remember that we're talking about things. We must never forget that an image has no agency. And so when a person interacts with that image, it is the person. The, the person is the only thing that has the agency. And you see this in um, in scenes in the play, which which are very kind of redolent of the um, the Steve McQueen film Shame, which has uh, Michael Fassbender in it playing a sex addict, where he has these encounters with physical bodies of, um, in one case, a woman colleague, but he can't become aroused because he has become too infatuated with the image. And so she, the, the woman colleague leaves and he ends up uh, masturbating and then he hires a prostitute and the prostitute turns up and in the prostitute he sees nothing but an image and that is capable of arousing him. So the points at which the woman on the stage in La Maladie de la Mort responds to the male character are the points at which he is unable to manifest his desire. She is no longer an image, she has become what she is, which is a body, and that confounds his um, expectations and his needs. And of course there is the paradox then, because what he claims to want is love, and love is something that is, um, however you define it, it involves participation, it involves the interaction of disparate, discrete subjectivities coming together and finding some kind of commonality, and that's not what he wants. And of course there is also a broader argument being manifest, and I think in some cases, some, some ways a very blunt argument, and that also annoyed me at the beginning, but as I got more into the play, it stopped annoying me about the relationship between the spectator and the spectacle, because what we come to in the spectacle is something that we want to find something from, and ultimately what we end up finding is ourselves, because we do not recognise in the spectacle, in as much as we recognise the spectacle as an image, anything that is actually a person, anything that is actually a, a, a being with its own subjectivities. And I think that this is something that, that Birch played with cruelly, um, importantly. And again, I must repeat my complete admiration for this person. I think that she's, well, like I said, I think this is the most... <sighs> the, the response I've had to this show is something that I I haven't had in memory to any kind of theatre spectacle is that what we ended up looking at, of course, was ourselves. And this is why I wanted to vomit over the audience. This is why I wanted to stop the mouths of everybody who was voicing their approval and who was clapping, because I didn't get what they were clapping at. Because ultimately what had been shown to us, or what it felt like what was being shown to us, was the manifestations of our own desires where we hadn't recognised the face. We had not recognised the um, other we hadn't seen in the people on stage an ethical boundary that required us to understand our responsibility to each other. What we had seen was an image. And of course, Mitchell plays with us. And Katie Mitchell somebody that, that's known for using um, screens. She, um, she's been kind of at the top of the theatre industry for, I think, probably about 12 years now. She, um, in her early productions of things like, she did a very, a very um, fated revival of Martin Crimp's attempt on her life. She did a version of Virginia Woolf's The Waves in which she used kind of live images and projections as a, not a counterpoint exactly, but um, a response to or an accentuation of or an, an engagement with the live performance. And what we got on stage in this show was 
the, 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 I think the word I want to use is cathecting. And cathecting is, is a word that from Theodore Adorno is kind of the, um, filtering, what I understand as the, as the filtering of an idea through an ideological lens. The cathecting of the, I'm sorry, I just thought I should really look this up before I put this episode up because I'm probably getting that wrong, but this is how I, I think the word, what I think it means of the onstage actors and they were physical bodies. They were, you know, vulnerable, um, frail human bodies that were presented to us on stage. They were then performed as an image in front of us. And I think that that's ultimately what the show seemed to be doing was, was taking these bodies and turning them into an image and showing us the relationships that we have with the image. And there was violence here too. There was an extraordinary amount of violence in, uh, very early on in the piece, you see the man um, watching the sleeping woman and taking a pillow and putting it over her face and her struggling and um, responding to him and shouting, you do not have the right to do this. And him kind of, sort of this this idea that he she must submit to him completely, even up until the point of death and her standing fast and saying, actually, no, there are limits. There are limits to what I will do for you and him not being able to accept this. The... Um, one of the reasons why I was so affected by this is because I have been thinking about this idea of the relationship between the spectator and the image a lot over the last couple of years. And I've, I've seen, I've watched as part of my research, um, videos of people who have confused their relationship with the image to the extent that they feel the need to make of themselves an image and ultimately to make of yourself an image to make, to, to, to completely manifest yourself in uh, an alien form is to die because an image is a dead thing. And if we really wanted to turn ourselves into images, if we really wanted to turn ourselves into the things that we see when we log into Facebook, when we check our phones and we get the images that are sent to us, then what we need to do is to die. Because if we do not die, if we maintain our existence as corporeal living, frail beings, then we confound the, um, hegemony the power the authority of the image and so there was i felt a kind of a struggle between the um ways in which the man wanted to possess the woman it seemed that what ultimately what he wanted was an image he thought that it was love he thought that what he wanted to do was to um find ways of loving her but in a way that didn't require her agency at all over the course of the play she begins to recognize in him what she calls and this is the title of the play the malady de l'amour the the illness of death. And it seemed that the illness of, of death that she was describing to the sickness was this, um, inability to recognize the other, the face of the other, or to respect the face of the other, the boundary of the other, to understand and to follow that age old dictum, thou shalt not kill. And in the age of the image that we live in, Thou shalt not kill, I think, refers to the need to engage with a physical being and to ignore what is presented to us in the form of an image. This has been a really, really, really confused and rambling um, episode. I think I will probably release it because I think it's important to do so because of the reasons that I said at the beginning. I am being a coward here, I have to say. There are reasons why this show got to me that I cannot possibly um, 
articulate because to articulate them publicly would be a betrayal of things that I hold dear. And I think that in and of itself is also significant because, um, again, again, I haven't mentioned Barker, but Howard Barker um, talks about this idea of privacy and um, secrecy as being something endemic to theatre because we sit in the dark and we are individualised, we are ourselves, we are not open and scrutinised to the bright lights that we otherwise are subjected to or subject ourselves to when we open up every facet of our lives to public scrutiny. There are things that I will keep secret. There are things that I will need to keep secret. Those secrets were spoken to tonight by this show. And I don't imagine or expect that other people who see this show will have the same response to me because they have, they have different experiences, they have different secrets, they have different ideas. It just so happened that the way in which Butch presented a show, the subjects that she was dealing with and the things that she argued spoke to things that I keep very, very, very hidden, very deep, um, which is it's one of those things, I don't know if it's a strength of the piece or, or an accident. It, I don't think it can be an accident that when I go and see Birch's work that this is the way that I come out of it feeling. I think there's something about her, there's something about the way that she writes, something about what she does that I find to be utterly extraordinary. I really fucking hate the show in some ways. I find it repellent and I find myself repellent because of it. But I think it's really necessary. And I hope that this um, this episode has made some kind of sense. Uh, the next one will be more to the usual kind of model and um, I will try to have more of an, an idea of what I'm saying. But um, thank you for listening. Um, cheers. Bye.